Book Three, Chapter Six, of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Houghton Tower. Chapter Six, Houghton Tower. About a month after the occurrence last described, and early on a fine morning in August, Nicholas Asherton and Richard Sherborne rode together from the proud town of Preston. Both were gaily attired in doublets and hose of yellow velvet, slashed with white silk, with mantles to match, the latter being somewhat conspicuously embroidered on the shoulder with a wild bull worked in gold, and underneath it the motto, Malgré le tort followed at a respectful distance by four mounted attendants the two gentlemen had crossed the bridge over the ribble and were wending their way along the banks of a tributary stream the darwen within a short distance of the charming village of walton lydale when they perceived a horseman advancing slowly towards them whom they instantly hailed as richard assheton and pushing forward were soon beside him both were much shocked by the young man's haggard looks and inquired anxiously as to his health but Richard bade them, with a melancholy smile, not to be uneasy, for all would be well with him ere long. "'Oh, we'll be over with you, lad, if you don't mind, and that's perhaps what you mean,' replied Nicholas. "'But as soon as the royal festivals at Houghton are over, I'll set about your care, and what's more I'll accomplish it, for I know where the seat of the disaster lies better than Dr. Morphew, your family physician at Middleton. "'Tis near the heart, Dick, near the heart.' Ha. "'See, I've touched you, lad. "'But, beshrew me, you're very strangely attired "'in a suit of sable velvet "'with a black Spanish hat and feather for a festival. "'You look as if you're going to a funeral. "'I'm fearful that His Majesty may take it amiss. "'Why not wear the livery of our house?' "'Nay, if it comes to that,' rejoined Richard, "'why do not you and Sherborne wear it, "'instead of flaunting like doors in borrowed plumage? "'I scarce know you in your strange garb.' and certainly should not take you for an Asherton, or all pertaining to our family, from your gaudy colours and the strange badge on your shoulder. "'I don't wonder at it, Dick,' said Nicholas. "'I scarce know myself, and though the clothes I wear are well made enough, they seem to sit awkwardly on me, and trouble me as much as the shirt of Nessus did Hercules of old. For the nonce I'm Sir Richard Houghton's retainer.' I must own I was angry with myself when I saw Sir Ralph Asherton with his long train of gentlemen, all in murray-coloured cloaks and doublets at Myerscough Lodge, while I, his cousin, was habited like one of another house. And when I would have excused my apparent defection to Sir Ralph, he answered coldly, It was better as it was, for he could scarcely have found room for me among his friends. Do not fret yourself, Nicholas rejoined Sherborne. "'Sir Ralph cannot reasonably take offence at a mere piece of good nature on your part. But this does not explain why Richard affects a colour so sombre.' "'I am the retainer of one whose livery is sombre,' replied the young man, with a ghastly smile. "'But enough of this,' he added, endeavouring to assume a livelier air. "'I suppose you are on your way to Houghton Tower. I thought to reach Preston before you were up, but I might have recollected you are no lagger-bed, Nicholas, not even after hard drinking overnight, as witness your feats at Whaley. 
To be frank with you, I feared being led into like excesses, and so preferred passing the night at the quiet little inn at Waltonley Dale, to coming on to you at the castle at Preston, which I knew would be full of noisy roisterers. <laughs> full it was, even to overflowing, replied the squire. But you should have come, Dick, for by my troth we had a right merry night of it. Stephen Hamerton of Ellifield Peel, with his wife and his sister, sweet mistress Doll Lister, supped with us, and we had music, dancing and singing, and abundance of good cheer. Nouns, Dick, Doll Lister's a delightful lass, and if you can only get Alison out of your head, would be just the wife for you. She sings like an angel has the most captivating sigh and die-away manner, and the prettiest rounded figure ever bodies kept in. Well, I in your place I should know where to choose. But you'll see her at Houghton to-day, for she is to be at the banquet and mask. Your description does not tempt me, said Richard. I have no taste for sigh and die-away damsels. Dorothy Lister, however, is accounted fair enough, but were she as fascinating as Venus herself, in my present mood I should not regard her. If earth, lad, I pity you if such be the case, shrugging his shoulders more in contempt than in compassion. Waste not your sympathy upon me, replied Richard, but tell me, how went the show at Preston yesterday? Excellently well, and much to his majesty's satisfaction, answered the squire. Proud Preston was never so proud before, and never with such good reason, for if the people be poor, according to the proverb, they take good care to hide their poverty. Bombards were fired from the bridge, and the church bells rang loud enough to crack the steeple, and bring it down about the ears of the deafened lieges. The houses were hung with carpets and arras, the streets strewn ankle-deep with sand and sawdust, the cross in the market-place was bedecked with garlands of flowers like a maypole and the condit near it ran wine. At noon there was more firing, and amidst flourishes of trumpet, rolling of drums, squeaking of fifes, and prodigious shouting, Bonny King Jamie came to the cross, where a speech was made to him by Master Breers, the recorder, after which the corporation presented his majesty with a huge silver ball in token of their love and loyalty. The king seemed highly pleased with the gift, and observed to the Duke of Buckingham, loud enough to be heard by the bystanders, who reported his speech to me, "'Gold Santa, it's a broad bickersteiner, and might serve for a christening cup if we had need a signal vessel, which heaven be praised we After this there was a grand banquet in the town hall, and when the heat of the day was over the king left with his train for Houghton Tower, visiting the alum mines on the way thither. We are bidden to breakfast by Sir Richard, so we must push on, Dick, for His Majesty's an early rise, and that myself. We're to have rare sport to-day, hunting in the morning, a banquet, and as I've already intimated a mask at night, in which Sir George Goring and Sir John Finnish will play, and in which I have been solicited to take the drolling part of Jem Tosspot. Nay, laugh not, Dick. Sherborne says I shall play it to the life as well as find some mirthful dame to enact the companion part of Doll Wango. I've spoken with two or three on the subject, and I fancy one of them will oblige me. There's another matter in which I'm engaged. I'm to present a petition to His Majesty from a great number of the lower orders in this county, praying they be allowed to make their diversions, as of old accustomed after divine service on Sunday. And though I'm the last man to desire any violation of the Sabbath, being somewhat puritanically inclined, as they now phrase it, 
yet I cannot think any harm can ensue from lawful recreation and honest exercise. Still, I would any one have chosen to present the petition rather than myself. Have no misgivings on the subject, said Richard, but urge the matter strongly, and if you need support, I will give you all I can, for I feel we are best observing the divine mandate by making the Sabbath a day of rest, and observing it cheerfully, and this, I apprehend, is the substance of your petition. Oh, summon substance, replied Nicholas, and I have reason to believe his majesty's wishes are in accordance with it. They are known to be so, said Sherborne. I am glad to hear it, cried Richard. God save King James, the friend of the people. Ah, God save King James, echoed Nicholas, and if he grant this petition, he will prove himself their friend, for he will have all the clergy against him, and be preached against from half the pulpits in the kingdom. Little harm will ensue if it should be so, replied Richard, for he will be cheered and protected by the prayers of a grateful and happy people. They then rode on for a few minutes in silence, after which Richard inquired, "'You had brave doings at Myerscough Lodge, I suppose, Nicholas?' "'Ah, Barry had we,' answered the squire. "'And the feasting must have cost Ned Tildesley a pretty penny. Besides the king and his own particular attendants, there were some dozen noblemen and their followers, including the Duke of Buckingham, who moves about like a king himself. And I know not how many knights and gentlemen.' Sherborne and I rode over from Dunno, and reached the forest immediately after the king had entered it in his coach. So we took a short cut through the woods, and came in just in time to join Sir Richard Houghton's train as he was riding up to his majesty. Fancy a wide glade, down which a great gilded coach is slowly moving, drawn by eight horses, and followed by a host of noblemen and gentlemen in splendid apparel. There is squires and pages, equally richly arrayed, and equally well mounted. And after these, numerous falconers, huntsmen, breakers, foresters, and yeomen, with staghounds in leash, and hawk on fist, all ready for the sport. Fancy all this, if you can, Dick, and then conceive what a brave sight it must have been. Well, as I said, we came up in the very nick of time, for presently the royal coach stopped, and Sir Richard Houghton, calling all his gentlemen around him, and bidding us dismount, we followed him, and drew up bareheaded before the king, while Sir Richard pointed out to his majesty the boundaries of the royal forest, and told him he would find it as well stocked with deer as any in his kingdom. Before putting an end to the conference, the king complimented the worthy knight on the gallant appearance of his train, and on learning we were all gentlemen, graciously signified his pleasure that some of us should be presented to him. Among others, I was brought forward by Sir Richard, and liking my looks, I suppose, the king was condescending enough to enter into conversation with me, and as his discourse chiefly turned on sporting matters, I was at home with him at once, and he presently grew so familiar with me that I almost forgot the presence in which I stood. However, his majesty seemed in no way offended by my freedom, but on the contrary clapped me on the shoulder and said, "'Maister Asherton, for a country gentleman, you're well-mannered and well-informed, and I shall be glad to see more of you while I stay in these parts.' After this the good-natured monarch mounted his horse, and the hunting began, and a famous day's work we made of it, his majesty killing no fewer than five fine bucks with his own hand. 
Oh, "'You are clearly on the road to preferment, Nicholas,' observed Richard with a smile. "'You will outstrip Buckingham himself if you go on in this way.' "'So I tell him,' observed Sherburne, laughing. "'And by my faith, young Sir Gilbert Houghton, who, owing to his connection by marriage with Buckingham, is a greater man than his father, Sir Richard, looked quite jealous.' for the king more than once called out to Nicholas in the chase, and talked a wood knife from him when he broke up the last deer, which is accounted a mark of special favour. Yeah, "'Well, gentlemen,' said the squire, "'I shall not stand in my own light, depend upon it. And if I should bask in court sunshine, you shall partake of the rays. If I do become master of the household in lieu of the Duke of Richmond, or master of the horse and cup-bearer to his majesty in place of his grace of Buckingham, I will not forget you. Oh, we are greatly indebted to you, my lord Marquis of Downham and Duke of Pendle Hill, that is to be, rejoined Sherburne, taking off his cap with mock reverence, and perhaps— for the sake of your sweet sister and my spouse, Dorothy, you will make interest have me appointed gentleman of the bedchamber. Oh, doubt it not, doubt it not, replied Nicholas in a patronising tone. My ambition soars higher than yours, Sherborne, said Richard. I must be Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal or nothing. Oh, what you will, gentlemen, what you will, cried Nicholas. You can ask me nothing I will not grant. "'always providing I have the means.' A turn in the road now showed them Houghton Tower, crowning the summit of an isolated and conical hill, about two miles off. Rising proudly in the midst of a fair and fertile plain, watered by the Ribble and the Darwen, this stately edifice seemed to command the whole country. And so King James thought, as from the window of his chamber he looked down upon the magnificent prospect around him, comprehending on the one hand the vast forests of Myerscough and Boland stretching as far as the fells near Lancaster, and on the other an open but still undulating country, beautifully diversified with wood and water, well-peopled and well-cultivated, green with luxuriant pastures, yellow with golden grain, or embowered with orchards, boasting many villages and small towns, as well as two lovely rivers, which, combining their currents at Walton Liddale, gradually expanded till they neared the sea, which could be seen gleaming through openings in the distant hills. As the king surveyed this fair scene, and thought how strong was the position of the mansion, situated as it was upon the high cliffs springing abruptly from the Darwin, and how favourably circumstanced with its forests and park for the enjoyment of the chase of which he was passionately fond, how capable of defence, and how well adapted for a hunting-seat, he sighed to think it did not belong to the crown. Nor was he wrong in his estimate of its strength, for in after years, during the civil wars, it held out stoutly against the parliamentary forces, and was only reduced at last by treachery, when part of its gate-tower was blown up, destroying an officer and two hundred men, in that blast most woefully. Though the hour was so early, the road was already thronged, not only with horsemen and pedestrians of every degree, from Preston, but with rude lumbering vehicles from the neighbouring villages of Plessington, Brockholes, and Curden, driven by farmers who, with their buxom dames and cherry-cheeked daughters, decked out in holiday finery, hoped to gain admittance to Houghton Tower, 
or at all events to obtain a peep of the king as he rode to the hunt. Most of these were saluted by Nicholas, who scrupled not to promise them admission to the outer court of the tower, and even went so far as to offer some of the comelier damsels a presentation to the king. Occasionally the road was enlivened by strains of music from a band of minstrels, by a song or a chorus from others, or by the gamesome tricks of a party of mummers. At one place a couple of tumblers and a clown were performing their feats on a cloth stretched on the grass beneath a tree. Here the crowd collected for a few minutes, but presently gave way to loud shouts, attended by the cracking of whips, proceeding from the two grooms in the yellow and white livery of Sir Richard Houghton, who headed some half-dozen carts filled with provisions, carcasses of sheep and oxen, turkeys and geese, pullets and capons, fish, bread and vegetables, all bent for Houghton Tower. For though Sir Richard had made vast preparations for his guests, he found his supplies, great as they were, wholly inadequate to their wants. Cracking their whips in answer to the shouts with which they were greeted, the purveyors galloped on, many a hungry white looking wistfully after them. Nicholas and his companions were now at the entrance to Houghton Park, through which the Darwin coursed, after washing the base of the rocky heights on which the mansion was situated. Here four yeomen of the guard, armed with halberds, and an officer were stationed, and no one was admitted without an order from Sir Richard Houghton. Possessing a pass, the squire and his companions, with their attendants, were of course allowed to enter. But the throng accompanying them were sent over the bridge and along a devious road skirting the park, which, though it went more than a mile round, eventually brought them to their destination. Houghton Park, though not very extensive, boasted a great deal of magnificent timber, and in some places was so thickly wooded that, according to Dr. Curdin, could scarcely have seen the sunshine at middle of day. Into one of these tenebrous groves the horsemen now plunged, and for some moments were buried in the gloom produced by matted and overhanging boughs. Issuing once more into the warm sunshine, they traversed a long and beautiful sylvan glade, skirted by ancient oaks, with mighty arms and gnarled limbs, the patriarchs of the forest. In the open ground on the left were scattered a few ash-trees, and beneath them browsed a herd of fallow deer, while crossing the lower end of the glade was a large herd of red deer, for which the park was famous, the hinds tripping nimbly and timidly away, but the lordly stags with their branching antlers standing for a moment at gaze, and disdainfully regarding the intruders on their domain. Little did they think how soon and how severely their courage would be tried, or how soon the mort would be sounded for their prize by the huntsman. But if, happily for themselves, the poor leathern-coated fools could not foresee their doom, it was not equally hidden from Nicholas, who predicted what would ensue, and pointed out one noble heart which he thought worthy to die by the king's own hand. As if he understood this, the stately beast tossed his antlered head aloft, and plunged into the adjoining thicket, but the squire noted the spot where he had disappeared. The glade led them into the chase, a glorious hunting-ground of about two miles in circumference, surrounded by an amphitheatre of wood, and studded by noble forest trees. Variety and beauty were lent to it by an occasional knoll crowned with timber, or by numerous ferny dells and dingles. As the horsemen entered upon the chase, they observed at a short distance from them a herd of the beautiful but fierce wild cattle, originally from Boland Forest, and still preserved in the park. White and spangled in colour, 
with short, sharp horns, fine eyes, and small, shapely limbs, these animals were of untamable fierceness, possessed of great cunning, and ever ready to assault any one who approached them. They would often attack a solitary individual, gore him, and trample him to death. Consequently, they were far more dreaded than the wild boars, with which, as with every other sort of game, the neighbouring woods were plentifully stocked. Well aware of the danger they ran, the party watched the herd narrowly and distrustfully, and would have galloped on, but this would only have provoked pursuit, and the wild cattle were swifter than any horses. Suddenly a milk-white bull trotted out from the rest of the herd, bellowing fiercely, lashing his sides with his tail, and lowering his head to the ground as if meditating an attack. His example was speedily followed by the others, and the whole herd began to beat the ground and roar lustily. Much alarmed by these hostile manifestations, the party were debating whether to stand the onset or trust to the fleetness of their steeds for safety, when, just as the whole herd, with tails erect and dilated nostrils, were galloping towards them, assistance appeared in the persons of some ten or a dozen mounted prickers, who, armed with long poles, pointed with iron, issued with loud shouts from an avenue opening upon the chase. At sight of them, the whole herd wheeled round and fled, but were pursued by the prickers till they were driven into the depths of the furthest thicket. Six of the prickers remained watching over them during the day, in order that the royal hunting party might not be disturbed, and the woods echoed with the bellowing of the angry brutes. While this was going forward, the squire and his companions, congratulating themselves on their narrow escape, galloped off, and entered the long avenue of sycamores from which the prickers had emerged. At the head of a steep ascent, partly hewn out of the rock, and partly skirted by venerable and majestic trees, forming a continuation of the avenue, rose the embattled gate-tower of the proud edifice they were approaching, and which now held the monarch of the land and the highest and noblest of his court as guests within its walls. From the top of the central tower of the gateway floated the royal banner, while at the very moment the party reached the foot of the hill, they were saluted by a loud peal of ordnance discharged from the side-towers, proclaiming that the king had arisen. And as the smoke from the culverins wreathed round the standard, a flourish of trumpets was blown from the walls, and martial music resounded from the court. Roused by these stirring sounds, Nicholas spurred his horse up the rocky ascent, and followed closely by his companions, who were both nearly as much excited as himself, speedily gained the great gateway, a massive and majestic structure, occupying the centre of the western front of the mansion, and consisting of three towers of great strength and beauty, the mid-tower far overtopping the other two, as in the arms of old Castile, and sustaining, as was its right, the royal standard. On the platform stood the trumpeters, with their silk-fringed clarions, and the iron mouths of the culverins, which had been recently discharged, protruded through the battlements. The arms and motto of the Houghtons, carved in stone, were placed upon the gateway, with the letters C.H., the initials of the founder of the tower. Immediately above the arched entrance was the sculptured figure of a knight slaying a dragon. In front of the gateway a large crowd of persons were assembled, consisting of the inferior gentry of the neighbourhood, with their wives, daughters, and servants, clergymen, attorneys, surgeons, farmers, and tradesmen of all kind, from the adjoining towns of Blackburn, Preston, Chorley, Haslingdon, Garstang, and even Lancaster. 
representatives in some sort or other of almost every town and village in the county might be found among the motley assemblage which early as it was numbered several hundreds many of those from the more distant places having quitted their homes soon after midnight admittance was naturally sought by all but here the same rule was observed as at the park gate and no one was allowed to enter even the base court without authority from the lord of the mansion the great gates were closed and two files of halberdiers were drawn up under the deep archway to keep the passage clear and quell disturbance in case any should occur while a gigantic porter stationed in front of the wicket rigorously scrutinized the passes these precautions naturally produced delay and though many of the better part of the crowd were entitled to admission it was not without much pushing and squeezing and considerable detriment to their gay apparel that they were enabled to effect their object the comfort of those outside the walls had not however been altogether neglected by sir richard houghton for sheds were reared under the trees where stout march beer together with cheese and bread or oaten cakes and butter were freely distributed to all applicants so that if some were disappointed few were discontented especially when told that the gates would be thrown open at noon when during the time the king and the nobles feasted in the great banquet hall they might partake of a wild bull from the park slaughtered expressly for the occasion which was now being roasted whole within the base court that the latter was no idle promise they had the assurance of thick smoke rising above the walls laden with the scent of roast meat and moreover they could see through the wicket a great fire blazing and crackling on the green with a huge carcass on an immense spit before it and a couple of turn-broaches basting it as nicholas and his companions forced their way through the crowd which was momently receiving additions as fresh arrivals took place the squire recognised many old acquaintances and was nodding familiarly right and left when he encountered a woman's eye fixed keenly upon him and to his surprise beheld nance redfern nance who had lost none of her good looks was very gaily attired with her fine chestnut hair knotted in ribbons her stomacher similarly adorned and her red petticoat looped up so as to display an exceedingly trim ankle and small foot and under other circumstances nicholas might not have minded staying to chat with her but just now it was out of the question and he hastily turned his head another way as ill luck however would have it a stoppage occurred at that moment during which nance forced her way up to him and taking hold of his arm said in a low tone you want to me win ye squire take you in with me impossible cried nicholas no it's no impossible rejoined nance pertinaciously you can do it and you shan you owe me a good turn and none repay it now but why the devil do you want to go in cried nicholas impatiently you know the king's a sworn enemy of all witches and among this concourse some one's sure to recognise you and betray you i cannot answer for your safety if i do take you in in my opinion you were extremely unwise to venture here at all there ain't my wisdom or my folly but do as i bid you or you'll repent it said nance <laughs> why you can get in without my aid observed the squire trying to laugh it off you can easily fly over the walls i left my broomstick at home replied nance but no more jesting will you do it well well i suppose i must replied nicholas but i wash my hands of the consequences if ill comes of it i'm not to blame you mun go in as doll wangle 
That is as a character in the mask to be enacted to-night. Demark! Nan signified that she perfectly understood him. The whole of this hurried discourse, conducted in an undertone, passed unheard and unknown by the bystanders. Just then an opening took place amid the crowd, and the squire pushed through it, hoping to get rid of his companion, but he hoped in vain, for clinging to his saddle she went along with him. They were soon under the deep groined and ribbed arch of the gate, and Nance would have been here turned back by the foremost halberdier, if Nicholas had not signified, somewhat hastily, that she belonged to his party. The man smiled, and offered no further opposition, and the gigantic porter next advancing, Nicholas exhibited his pass to him, which, appearing sufficiently comprehensive to procure admission for Richard and Sherborne, they instantly availed themselves of the licence, while the squire fumbled in his doublet for a further order for Nance. At last he produced it, and after reading it the gigantic warder exclaimed, with a smile illumining his broad features, "'Ah, I see, this is an order for his worship, Sir Richard, to admit a certain woman who is to enact Dol Wango in the mask. This is she, I suppose?' he added, looking at Nance. "'Ah, yeah,' replied the squire. "'A comely wench by the mass!' exclaimed the porter. "'Open the gate!' "'No, not yet, not yet, good porter, till my claim be adjusted,' cried another woman, pushing forward, quite as young and comely as Nance, and equally gaily dressed. "'I am the real doll wango, though I'd be generally known as Dame Titlow. The squire engaged me to play the part before the king, and now this saucy hussy has taken my place. But I'll have my rights, that I will.' "'Odds heart, too, doll wangos!' exclaimed the porter, opening his eyes. Two, nay, be lady, but there be three!' exclaimed an immensely tall, stoutly proportioned woman, stepping up to the increased confusion of the squire, and the infinite merriment of the bystanders, whose laughter had been already excited by the previous part of the scene. "'Didn't you tell me at Miles Cuff to come here, squire, and I, Bess Baldwin, should play doll wango to your gen tospot?' "'Play the devil, for that's what you all seem bent on doing,' exclaimed the squire impatiently. "'Away with you, I can have nothing to say to you.' "'You gave me the same promise at the castle at Preston last night,' said Dame Tetlow. "'I'd been drinking, and know not what I said,' rejoined Nicholas angrily. "'But you promised me a few minutes ago, and you're sober enough now,' cried Nance. "'I dunna know that.' rejoined Dame Baldwin, looking reproachfully at him. "'But what I do know is that neither of these squeamous queens shall go in afore me.' And she looked menacingly at them, as if determined to oppose their ingress, much to the alarm of the timorous Dame Tetlow, although Nance returned her angry glances unmoved. "'For heaven's sake, my good fellow, let them all three in,' said Nicholas, in a low tone to the porter at the same time slipping a gold piece into his hand. "'Oh, there's no saying what may be the consequence for their three infernal viragos. I'll take the responsibility of their admittance upon myself with Sir Richard.' "'Well, as your worship says, I don't like to see quarrelling among women,' returned the porter in a bland tone. "'So all three shall go in, and as to who is played doll wango, the master of ceremonies will settle that.' "'so you need give yourself no more concern about it. "'But if I were called on to decide,' he added, "'with an amorous leer at Dame Baldwin, 
whose proportions so well matched his own. "'I know where my choice with light.' "'There now,' he shouted, "'open wide the gate for Squire Nicholas Asherton of Downham and the three dull wangos.' And all obstacles being thus removed, Nicholas passed on with the three females, amidst the renewed laughter of the bystanders. But he got rid of his plagues as soon as he could, for, dismounting, and throwing his bridle to an attendant, he vouchsafed not a word to any of them, but stepped quickly after Richard and Sherborne, who had already reached the great fire with the bull-roasting before it. Appropriated chiefly to stables and other offices, the base court of Houghton Tower consisted of buildings of various dates, the greater part belonging to Elizabeth's time, though some might be assigned to an earlier period, while many alterations and additions had been recently made in anticipation of the King's visit. Dating back as far as Henry II, the family had originally fixed their residence at the foot of the hill on the banks of the Darwin, but in process of time, swayed by prouder notions, they mounted the craggy heights above, and built a tower upon their crest. It is melancholy to think that so glorious a pile, teeming with so many historical recollections and so magnificently situated, should be abandoned and suffered to go to decay, the family having many years ago quitted it for Walton Hall near Waltonley Dale, and consigned it to the occupation of a few gamekeepers. Bereft of its venerable timber, its courts grass-grown, its fine oak staircase rotting and dilapidated, its domestic chapel neglected, its marble chamber broken and ruinous, its wainscoting and ceilings cracked and mouldering, its paintings mildewed and half-effaced, Houghton Tower presents only the wreck of its former grandeur. Desolate indeed are its halls, and their glory for ever departed. However, this history has to do with it in the season of its greatest splendour, when it glistened with silks and velvets, and resounded with loud laughter and blithe music, when stately nobles and lovely dames were seen in the gallery, and a royal banquet was served in the great hall, when its countless chambers were filled to overflowing, and its passages echoed with hasty feet, when the base court was full of huntsmen and falconers, and enlivened by the neighing of steeds and the baying of hounds, when there was daily hunting in the park, and nightly dancing and diversions in the hall, it is with Houghton Tower at this season that the present tale has to do, and not with it as it is now, silent, solitary, squalid, saddening, but still whispering of the glories of the past, still telling of the kingly pageant that once graced it. The base court was divided from the court of lodging by the great hall and domestic chapel. A narrow vaulted passage on either side led to the upper quadrangle, the façade of which was magnificent, and far superior in uniformity of design and style to the rest of the structure, the irregularity of which, however, was not unpleasing. The whole frontage of the upper court was richly moulded and filleted, with ranges of mullion and transom windows, capitals and carved parapets crowned with stone balls. Marble pillars in the Italian style had been recently placed near the porch, with two rows of pilasters above them, supporting a heavy marble cornice on which rested the carved escutcheon of the family. A flight of stone steps led to the porch, and within was a wide oak staircase, so gentle of ascent that a man on horseback could easily mount it, a feat often practised in latter days by one of the descendants of the house. In this part of the mansion, 
All the principal apartments were situated, and here James was lodged. Here also was the green room, so called from its hangings, which he used for private conferences, and which was hung round with portraits of his unfortunate mother, Mary Queen of Scots, and of her implacable enemy, Queen Elizabeth, of his consort, Anne of Bohemia, and of Sir Thomas Houghton, the founder of the Tower. Adjoining it was the Star Chamber, occupied by the Duke of Buckingham, with its napkin panelling and ceiling fretted with golden fires, and in the same angle were rooms occupied by the Duke of Richmond, the Earls of Pembroke and Nottingham, and Lord Howard of Effingham. Below was the library, with a Dr. Thomas Morton, Bishop of Chester, and His Majesty's chaplain, with three puny judges of the King's Bench, Sir John Doddridge, Sir John Crook, and Sir Robert Houghton, all of whom were guests of Sir Richard, resorted. And in the adjoining wing was the great gallery, where the whole of the nobles and courtiers passed such of their time, and that was not much, as was not occupied in feasting or out-of-doors amusements. Long corridors ran round the upper stories in this part of the mansion, and communicated with an endless series of rooms, which, numerous as they were, were all occupied, and accommodation being found impossible for the whole of the guests, many were sent to the new erections in the base court, which had been planned to meet the emergency by the magnificent and provident host. The nobles and gentlemen were, however, far outnumbered by their servants, and the confusion occasioned by the running to and fro of the various grooms of the chambers was indescribable. Doublets had to be brushed, ruffs plaited, hair curled, beards trimmed, and all with the greatest possible expedition, so that as soon as day dawned upon Houghton Tower there was a prodigious racket from one end of it to the other. Many favoured servants slept in truckle-beds in their master's rooms, but others, not so fortunate, and unable to find accommodation even in the garrets, for the smallest rooms, and those nearest the roof, were put in requisition, slept upon the benches in the hall, while several sat up all night carousing in the great kitchen, keeping company with the cooks and their assistants, who were busied all the time in preparations for the feasting of the morrow. Such was the state of things inside Houghton Tower early on the eventful morning in question, and out of doors, especially in the base court which Nicholas was traversing, the noise, bustle, and confusion were equally great. Wide as was the area, it was filled with various personages, some newly arrived, and seeking information as to their quarters, not very easily obtained, for it seemed everybody's business to ask questions and no one's to answer them some gathered in groups round the falconers and huntsmen, who had suddenly risen into great importance. Others, and these were for the most part smart young pages in brilliant liveries, chattering and making love to every pretty damsel they encountered, putting them out of countenance by their license and strange oaths, and rousing the anger of their parents and the jealousy of their rustic admirers. Others, of a graver sort, with dress of formal cut, and puritanical expression of countenance, shrugging their shoulders, and looking sourly on the whole proceedings. Luckily they were in the minority, for the generality of the groups were composed of lively and light-headed people, bent apparently upon amusement, and tolerably certain of finding it. Through these various groups numerous lackeys were passing swiftly and continuously to and fro, bearing a cap, a mantle, or a sword, and pushing aside all who interfered with their progress with a "'By your leave, my masters! Your pardon, fair mistress!' or "'Out of my way, knave!' And as the stables occupied one entire angle of the court, 
there were grooms without, end-dressing the horses at the doors, watering them at the troughs, or leading them about amid the admiring and criticising bystanders. The king's horses were, of course, objects of special attention, and such as could obtain a glimpse of them, and of the royal coach, thought themselves especially favoured. Besides what was going forward below, the windows, looking into the court, were all full of curious observers, and much loud conversation took place between those placed at them and their friends underneath. From all this some idea will be formed of the tremendous din that prevailed, but though with much confusion there was no positive disorder, still less brawling, for yeomen of the guard being stationed at various points, perfect order was maintained. Several minstrels, mummers, and merrymakers, in various fantastic habits, swelled the throng, enlivening it with their strains or feats, and among other privileged characters admitted, was a Tom Bedlam, a half-crazed licensed beggar, in the singular and picturesque garb, with a plate of tin engraved with his name attached to his left arm, and a great ox's horn, which he was continually blowing, suspended by leathern baldric from his neck. Scarcely had Nicholas joined his companion, than word was given that the king was about to attend morning prayers in the domestic chapel. Upon this, an immediate rush was made in that direction by the crowd, but the greater part were kept back by the guard, who crossed their halberds to prevent their ingress, and a few only were allowed to enter the antechamber leading to the chapel, among whom were the squire and his companions. Here they were detained within till service was over, and as prayers were read by the Bishop of Chester, and the whole court was present, this was a great disappointment to them. At the end of half an hour two very courtly personages came forth, each bearing a white wand, and, announcing that the king was coming forth, the assemblage immediately divided into two lines to allow a passage for the monarch. Nicholas Asherton informed Richard in a whisper that the foremost and stateliest of the two gentlemen was Lord Stanhope of Harrington, the vice-chamberlain, and the other, a handsome young man of slight figure and somewhat libertine expression of countenance, was the renowned Sir John Finnett, master of the ceremonies. Notwithstanding his licentiousness, however, which was the vice of the age and the stain of the court, Sir John was a man of wit and address, and perfectly conversant with the duties of his office, of which he has left satisfactory evidence in an amusing tractate, Finetti Philoxenis. Some little time elapsed before the king made his appearance, during which the curiosity of such as had not seen him, as was the case with Richard, was greatly excited. The young man wondered whether the pedantic monarch, whose character perplexed the shrewdest, would answer his preconceived notions, and whether it would turn out that his portraits were like him. While these thoughts were passing through his mind, a shuffling noise was heard without, and King James appeared at the doorway. He paused there for a moment to place his plumed and jewelled cap upon his head, and to speak a word with Sir John Finnett, and during this Richard had an opportunity of observing him. The portraits were like, but the artists had flattered him, though not much. There was a great shrewdness of look, but there was also a vacant expression, which seemed to contradict the idea of profound wisdom generally ascribed to him. When in perfect repose, which they were not for more than a minute, the features were thoughtful, benevolent, and pleasing, and Richard began to think him quite handsome, when another change was wrought by some remark of Sir John Finnett. 
As the master of ceremonies told his tale, the king's fine dark eyes blazed with an unpleasant light, and he laughed so loudly and indecorously at the close of this narrative, with his great tongue hanging out of his mouth and tears running down his cheeks, that the young man was quite sickened. The king's face was thin and long, the cheeks shaven, but the lips clothed with moustaches, and a scanty beard covered his chin. The hair was brushed away from the face, and the cap placed at the back of the head, so as to exhibit a high bald forehead, of which he was prodigiously vain. James was fully equipped for the chase, and wore a green silk doublet, quilted, as all his garments were, so as to be dagger-proof, enormous trunk hose likewise thickly stuffed, and buff boots fitting closely to the leg, and turned slightly over at the knee, with the edges fringed with gold. This was almost the only appearance of finery about the dress, except a row of gold buttons down the jerkin. Attached to his girdle he wore a large pouch, with the mouth drawn together by silken cords, and a small silver bugle was suspended from his neck by a baldric of green silk. Stiffly starched bands edged with lace, and slightly turned down on either side of the face, completed his attire. There was nothing majestic but the very reverse in the king's deportment, and he seemed only kept upright by the exceeding stiffness of his cumbersome clothes. With the appearance of being corpulent, he was not so in reality, and his weak legs and bent knees were scarcely able to support his frame. He always used a stick, and generally sought the additional aid of a favourite's arm. In this instance the person selected was Sir Gilbert Houghton, the eldest son of Sir Richard, and subsequent owner of Houghton Tower. Indebted for the high court favour he enjoyed, partly to his graceful person and accomplishments, and partly to his marriage, having espoused a daughter of Sir John Aston of Cranford, who, as sister to the Duchess of Buckingham, and a descendant of the blood royal of the Stuarts, was a great help to his rapid rise, the handsome young knight was skilled in all manly exercises, and cited as a model of grace in the dance. Constant in attendance upon the court, he frequently took part in the masks performed before it. Like the king, he was fully equipped for hunting, but greater contrast could not have been found than between his tall, fine form and the king's ungainly figure. Sir Gilbert had remained behind with the rest of the courtiers in the chapel, but, calling him, James seized his arm and set forward at his usual shambling pace. As he went on, nodding his head in return to the profound salutations of the assemblage, his eye rolled around them until it alighted on Richard Asherton and nudging Sir Gilbert, he asked, "'Where's that? A bonny lad, but where's some pale?' Sir Gilbert, however, was unable to answer the inquiry, but Nicholas, who stood beside the young man, was determined not to lose the opportunity of introducing him, and accordingly moved a step forward, and made a profound obeisance. "'This youth, may it please your majesty,' he said, "'is my cousin Richard Asherton, son and heir of Sir Richard Asherton of Middleton, one of your Majesty's most loyal and devoted servants, and who, I trust, will have the honour of being presented to you in the course of the day.' "'We trust so too, Mr. Nicholas Asherton, for that, if we do not forget his great name,' replied James, "'and if the sire resembles the son, which is not always the case, as our good friend Sir Gilbert is evidence,' being as unlike his worthy father as a man will can be. And if, as we say, Sir Richard resembles his gallant, he must be a well-favoured gentleman. But good, Sandy lad, how came you in such sad and sombre abuliments? Are you no brave clays to put on to grace or coming? 
Black is another fashion at our court, as Sir Gilbert will tell ye, and though a suit of sables may become ye, is no pleasing in our sight. Let us see an gayer apparel at dinner. Richard, who was considerably embarrassed by the royal address, merely bowed, and Nicholas again took upon himself to answer for him. "'Your Majesty will be pleased to pardon him,' he said, "'but he is unaccustomed to court fashions, having passed all his time in a wild and uncivilised district, where, except on rare and happy occasions like the present, the refined graces of life seldom reach us.' "'Well, we wouldn't be hard upon him,' said the King, good-naturedly. "'And mayhap the family has sustained some recent loss and is in mourning.' "'Now, I cannot offer that excuse for him, sire.' replied Nicholas, who began to flatter himself he was making considerable progress in the monarch's good graces. It's simply an affair of the heart. "'Ah, poor child, we pity him,' cried the king. "'And says the hopeless suit, young sir,' he added to Richard. "'Can we throw in a good word for ye? Do we ken the lassie, and is she to be here to-day?' "'I am quite at a loss how to answer your majesty's questions.' replied Richard, and my cousin Nicholas has very unfairly betrayed my secret. "'Oh, who toot me, lad!' exclaimed James. "'It wasn't he who betrayed your secret, but your own discernment that was revealed to us. We kenned your ailment at a glance. Few things are hidden from the king's eye, and we could tell you more about yourself and the lassie you're dying for, if we cared to speak it. But just now we have other fish to fry, and must away and break our fast.' After which, if truth be spoken, we stand greatly in need, for creature comforts may be looked at as well as spiritual wants, though the latter should ever be cared for first, as is our own rule, and in so doing we offer an example to our subjects, which they will do well to follow. Later in the day we will talk further to ye on the subject, but meanwhile give us the name of your lassie Lou. Oh, spare me, your majesty, cried Richard. Her name is Alison Nutter interposed Nicholas. "'What! A daughter of Alice, not a rough Lee!' exclaimed James. "'The same, sire,' replied Nicholas, much surprised at the extent of information manifested by the king. "'Why, soul of my body, marches a witch, a witch to kenna!' cried the king, with a look of abhorrence. "'A mischievous and malignant vermin, which with this part of our realm is so plagued, but which with God's help will thoroughly extirpate!' "'Say the lass is a daughter of Alice, not a—' "'That accounts for your gruesome looks, lad. "'Odd life, I see it now. "'I understand what's the matter with you. "'Look at him, Sir Gilbert, look at him, I say. "'Does nothing strike you strange about him?' Mm, "'Nothing more than he is naturally embarrassed by your Majesty's mode of speech,' replied the knight. Uh, "'You lack the penetration of the king, Sir Gilbert,' cried James. "'I will tell you what ails him. "'He's bewitched, forspoken!' Exclamations were uttered by all the bystanders, and every eye was fixed on Richard, who felt ready to sink to the ground. "'Ah, firm, he is bewitched,' continued the king, "'and we're so likely to do it as the glamouring hissy that has ensnared him. "'She has ill blood in her veins, "'and can chant devil's cantrips too well as the mither, "'or any gar callin' of them are.' "'You are mistaken, sire,' cried Richard earnestly. "'Alison will be here to-day with my father and sister, "'and if you deign to receive her, I am sure you will judge her differently.' Uh, "'We shall perpend the point of receiving her,' replied the king gravely. 
"'But we're really mistaken, young man, "'and seldom change your opinion except on good grounds, "'and those your arena is like to offer us. "'Belike ye have been lang ill.' "'Oh, no, your majesty, I was suddenly seized about a month ago,' replied Richard. "'Ah, suddenly seized, eh?' exclaimed James, "'winking cunningly at those near him. "'And ye swaff it o'ers with the bees, I guessed it. "'And where was Alison the while?' "'At that time she was a guest at Middleton,' replied Richard. "'But it is impossible my illness can in any way be attributed to her. "'I will answer with my life for her perfect innocence.' "'Ye may have to answer with your life for your misplaced faith in her,' said the King. "'But I tell you nothing. "'Nothing wicked at all events is impossible to witches. "'And the hale case even by your own showing is very suspicious.' "'I have heard somewhat of the story of Alice Nutter, but not the hale truth. "'But there are folks here who can enlighten us more fully. "'As thus much I do ken, that she's a notorious witch and a fugitive from justice. "'Though her blends you, Mr. Nicholas Asherton could give an inkling of her hiding place if you are so disposed. "'Nay, <laughs> no, look doited man,' he added, laughing. I bring nae charges against you. Ye are in on your trail new, but this is a serious matter, and one be seriously considered before we dismiss it. You see, Alison will be here to-day. See, for well, can you contrive to produce the mother too, Maister Nicholas? Sire, exclaimed Nicholas. Nay, then, we mun gang our in way to work, continued James. We told you here petition to offer us. "'and our will and pleasure is that you present it "'afore we go forth to the chase, "'and after we have partaken of our matutinal reflection, "'which we will no longer delay, "'for so to say we are will nay famished. "'Look, ye sirs, neither of you is to quit out and tow "'without our permission had and obtained. "'We do not place you under arrest, "'neither do we inhibit you from the chase or other sports, "'but you are to remain here at our sovereign pleasure.' "'Have we your word that you will not attempt to disobey the injunction?' "'You have mine undoubtedly, sire,' replied Richard. "'And mine, too,' added Nicholas, "'and I hope to justify myself before your majesty.' "'We shall be well pleased to hear you do it, man,' rejoined the king, laughing and shuffling on. "'But we hear doubts, we hear doubts.' "'His majesty talks of going to breakfast and says he's famished.' observed Nicholas to Sherborne, as the king departed. "'But it's completely taken away my appetite.' "'No wonder,' replied the other. End of chapter 6